Today, we're bringing you a special panel discussion. We're joined by Brian Grauzos, Director of Engagement Quality at Prescient Assurance, Adam Barrett, Reliability Engineering Consultant, and Tony Davis, Senior Engagement Engineer at AI Ops. The panel will be discussing their biggest challenges and takeaways of 2023, and will then discuss their most important hurdles for 2024. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. The general topic that we wanted to get all of your insights on are the state of IT for 2024, right? Everybody's doing their 2024 planning right now. It's the end of the year. We're about to hit vacation season. And as people do that, they typically consume a lot of podcasts, which is great. And so I figured if we could help them uh, share with them how we're thinking about the future and how we're thinking about IT for 2024, that would be useful. But before that, I wanted to just do a quick reflection on some of the biggest challenges that we've each faced this year leading our technology teams or working with clients in technology. Is that okay? Sounds yeah. good. Awesome. Brian, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I think one of the biggest things I'm seeing right now is the, uh, you know, with the economy kind of playing out the way it is and everything, security funding is taking a bit of a hit and really trying to make the case for why security is important and why it's Although it's a cost center, it's also something that needs to be taken seriously to protect and do your diligence on your patients, your clients, your businesses that you work with. Make sure you're doing the right thing by them by having the appropriate security budget while considering the needs of the business. The more things get tight, uh, the higher uh, stricter compliance gets over the timeframes, the, uh, uh, the more people take a look at things like security um, since they don't generate revenue. So really keeping a focus on what's important for your business, mitigating risk to appropriate level, understanding your risk appetite, things like that, I think are um, things that are really uh, trends you're seeing coming out of 2023, rolling into 2024 that are really um, need to be paid attention to. What do you think, Adam? Yeah. So for myself, who, you know, my focus is electromechanical product development, you know, with software control. One thing that's really been interesting and been a big point of discussion over the past year is security of electromechanical devices controlled through software and what can be done now and how impactful it is with the internet of everything, right? Your coffee maker has a Wi-Fi card now. So a product that I worked on recently was something uh, as simple as a computer controlled IV system in a hospital. So the question is, are we responsible if somebody hacks in and does an assassination by drowning somebody in saline solution through their blood, diluting their blood? You know, like really simple stuff like that where as you know, especially with medical devices where I do a lot of work, that exposure is tremendous and very unprotected and very a tremendous amount of variability, right? I mean, different hospitals have different levels of security or control or ability, and some are very low fund, you know, very uh, don't have a lot of resource in that area. I mean, it's amazing to think a hacker could actually kill somebody by simply changing parameters on a medical device. So that's become a whole new part of the reliability of the system and reliability separate from product failure to reliability of you know patient and user safety and can this be used against them? So that was a big change. That's interesting because I was doing all sorts of nefarious things <laughs> when I was 13 on the internet. And sometimes you, you know, you're immature. That's why we don't let kids make decisions, <laughs> right? So doing things like, oh, 
is this satellite open? Let's see if I can get in there. Or is this, this can't really be a hospital. This must be some tor- type of game. Let me see if I can just kill all the patients. Yeah. So it's not just like nefarious people trying to kill a specific person. It can also be kids just exploring the digital landscape and being like, what is this? Let's flip that switch and see right. what happens. Just exploring. Right. I think to, to your point too, Adam, is um, understanding where your risks are and your risks of exposure, right? I think that's something a lot of people aren't doing a great job at in lots of industries with the internet of everything and uh, um, the cloud and, and lots of areas, right? They're just not doing a thorough risk analysis on where they might have exposures and what could happen with some of those exposures. So that was a great call out. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, to some degree, the way I look at risk I always look at how does variability affect something. I can start with the assumption that everything at nominal value works. You know, your thing works under nominal value. So what happens with variabilities? And when you look at that problem, holy camoly, when you get to the variability of what's controlled in the firewalls and the hospital, you know, the, the system, the server system it's run on, like that's wild, right? You can even have third world countries. You can have, you know, these systems can be running off somebody's data link on their cell phone while it's sitting in some, you know, very rudimentary building. And um, how do you, you know, how do you control what you're doing with that kind of variability? It's an interesting problem. Tony, what are you saying? Yeah, I'm probably, it would be similar to what Adam said there. Because for me, when I look back, so I'm not 35 years or whatever in the business has mostly been and IT operations, which is a very fluid part of any corporation, right? So it's always moving. It's it's just constantly collecting data. So for me, over the past year, and actually I think going into the next year, my biggest challenge uh, working with clients has been the explosion, I guess you would call it the exponential explosion of data that is being collected and stored. And then what are you doing with that data? So like where Adam mentioned, you know, who's controlling, who controls that and how is it being controlled? I think even in the world that I live in, which is IT operations, the storage and the control of all of this data that we're collecting, especially from, you know, monitoring sources of any kind, I think that represents risk. Um, and I, I think on a operational side, a lot of people don't know what to do with the data like even how to use it on a day-to-day perspective. Like you get so much data. One client recently tell me, look, I don't have a problem gathering data about my systems and about my applications. I have a problem knowing what to do with it once I have all of these data points. So I think that'll continue to be the story, but even more so now with uh, AI uh, as we move into 2024. Yeah, that's actually really interesting, Tony, because... The thing about how to use your data is such a big question. And and now being on the cusp of the AI, how do you direct AI to use it? And kind of everybody right now is like, oh, you know, treat it as a chat bot where, you know, it's an individual, like almost like a personal interaction, like we're treating it like a person and not really probably to some degree, you know, truly unleashing it to do what it could do in other forms. And which means that if you treat it as a person, you give it commands. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. Can we figure out how to have it answer that fundamental question? What should I do with this data? What can I learn? And it's so interesting. And it's actually an initiative for me in this next year because a part of my work is that I do take data in the field performance for products of mechanical, electrical, all kinds. And I try to characterize behaviors and then use those behaviors to predict the future. And, you know, which then can be used in many ways. It's an insanely tedious process. It's, and art, 
and knowledge and experience. And there's always 15 people better than you at it. And you're like, oh, how did they find that? And then to think about that process and just turning over, you know, turning over to something that will actually define the problem better is, is so interesting. And I really am curious what's, what's going to happen with that. You both kind of brought up something that I thought was interesting too. I mean, uh, you alluded to the complexity shift over the time that you guys have been in the field, right? It's gotten dramatically more complex, but also, also the ethical considerations, right? Like, um, data ethical considerations becoming a hot button issue right now. How do you use data? What's appropriate? Um, what's legal? Um, how far can you push that envelope? Uh, and, and Adam, you even brought up, uh, who's responsible if somebody does something with some of these healthcare devices, right? Like, where is my ethical line in the sand that I have to worry about crossing over um, for some of these issues? You know, where is our accountability fall and what are we covered for? I mean, killing somebody could be huge, you know, insurance liability, legal liability, all kinds of things uh, through negligence and not knowing what your exposure is. That's uh, a significant risk that people have to be aware of. I mean, the risk to these medical companies is I've been at companies, I've been working with companies who had a, an issue you know, like something simple, something a simple mechanical issue, electric mechanical issue, the FDA just walks in and can just shut you down. And by the way, I didn't know, but the FDA is a division, a military division. They're an unarmed military division. They show up in like military fatigues. Like it's really yeah. scary. Wow. They didn't and know that. They wow. just, and, and they'll just shut you down for a year. Like your business is shut for, like that's devastating. You could go out of business. And and that was without killing anybody, right? So yeah, exactly. When, when there's this sense of loss of control, if the FDA feels like, not only do we not know what happened or who's at fault, but we don't even know where to start investigating this. They could go in and blanket, shut down a lot of stuff. Like the exposure is, is tremendous, I think, to these companies. What about vendor risk even? Like you're a hospital, you use these devices. Are you at risk or are they at risk or who's really on right. the, holding the bag at the end of the day, right? Like for something yep. like that, uh, something bad happens or is it everybody? And it gets strange quick. And the funny thing is, you know, with regulatory, it inspires creativity, we'll say, and getting around things. And I've seen where, you know, with uh, HEPA laws, which protect patient information, but uh, medical companies still want information on their products, right? You know, they, they I mean, because they're trying to understand, they want their data set. How's my product performing? You know, they don't want the patient data. But because of uh, HEPA laws, they're not allowed to be, uh, if they're on the hospital network, they can't go out. So they just go down to the Verizon store and buy little, you know, uh, cell phone cards and hook it up to their machine. And the machine's just directly sending it out to the cell phone tower now, right? Like they just bypass everything. And I'm not even sure how, you know, like the legality of it is even weird. But I mean, you want to talk about vulnerability. It's, it's, a, it's running off a burner phone card, basically. Like, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter what the hospital does. They're not even using their network. That's a little so, shady. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting, but the shadiness part's even hard to state because the question is the HEPA laws are pr protecting the patient information, right? And so they do this very blanket, hard, like wall of, of anything going out. And these cards are specifically taking instrument data, like just, no, you know, like the patient, you know, like that information's kind of removed. So the, it's more of that. They never created enough resolution in the data with regard to what's protected and what's not. To where it's leaving a little bit of this kind it's of the ethical thing right self-regulatory like, part nobody's where it's like watching. yeah i don't have any patient names or whatever i just have my servo count uh -huh. and my this and that and the fluidic flows of whatever you know and um you know i didn't take out the but, hospital the patient but but the problem becomes when there's a, a little gap in that wall right 
like if I can get into the hospital network through that device or if an engineer can get into the hospital network through that device, right? Right. Oh, that's exactly it. It's as far as security, it's like, talk about a back door. You know, it's having Fort Knox, but you have a screen door in the back, you know, that has a please knock sign or don't know trespassing. You know what I mean? It's like, that's that's basically what it's been reduced to. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, yeah. So, and, and, and you're really in trouble when your IT auditors show up. Yeah. <laughs> and when they when they find that cell card that's transmitting data, um, that's that's going to be a real weakness that they're going to note. But are the IT auditors breaking open the machines and looking inside? Like that's uh, they could the ask thing, a right? good question. So we, if you're doing your job right, yeah. you should be asking the right questions to say how is this transmitting and things like that. But this cup brings up a whole other can of worms that I'm pretty passionate about around like compliance and audit is not meant to to regulate these kinds of things, in my opinion. It's meant to make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing, not meant to be the watchdogs, as has kind of become yeah. in the last you know 10 years or so. Um, security should always be first with audit second, in my opinion, or compliance second, but it's really flipped around to what's the bare minimum we can get by with with our auditors. If that's the case, yeah. then let's do that. And um, <laughs> I think that's a, just a very slippery slope in the ethical landscape, right? You need to make sure that oh, yeah. you, you have that open window or open glass kind of thing that you were talking about, Adam, like if it's not ethical, don't do it. Right. Like you don't need somebody to tell you not to do it. You know, it's wrong. Just don't do it. Right. Security as a whole is kind of trending in that direction and getting what I might call lazy to some degree around security, right? Like how low can we go uh, and still be okay? It's a, it's a dangerous concept to, to really see happening in the industry. Brian, I signed the contract with the Fortune 500 company. I need to get like, and then they give me all these ridiculous compliance questions and these absurd things that act like they have no experience in understanding what type of product or service I'm delivering to the company, you know? And, and then I'm like, all right, well, these are just the stupid, like, these are not the things that they should even be thinking about. That's what I'm thinking as an, as an engineer. I'm like, this isn't what you want to be looking at. (laughs) But nonetheless, that's the hurdle I have to jump. So now I'm like, now my entire you know process is designed to just overcome those hurdles and i spend all of my effort overcoming these ridiculous hurdles <laughs> and i don't get to take any of that money and time cuz we're a business right and put it towards you know actually solving the things that need to be solved it's certainly the check boxes is what it's turned into um and even when the check boxes don't make sense we still want people to check boxes right um and to your point like your vendors and your clients should know you and how you operate at a deeper level than just a security questionnaire that maybe doesn't even make sense for how you operate, right? It really is knowing your risk profile by your, your high-risk vendors and really getting to know them at a deeper level, I think, is uh, uh, something we need to be doing a better job of. It's kind of like we've automated without automation, right? We've kind of taken any kind of audit judgment or any kind of judgment at all out of a lot of our security conversations and just relied on tools and, and processes that maybe don't even make sense anymore and we never reevaluate them. And I think we should. I think we should be looking at what is the right thing to do here and the most efficient and effective way to get to the objective versus what well, we do, you know, PCI audit. So we're good, right? So we don't have to worry about security anymore. Actually, Joel, you yeah. just said something that I, I don't know if this is what you meant or not, but it's, it's interesting is the, the idea that there's so many, you know, let's say in that case, clauses in that contract that at some point you're just going to use your own judgment of what you think they mean or what you think was intended because it's so excessive, right? I think an interesting example of that is recently California expanded their cancel, cancer warning labels onto something that is 
so benign. Now there's cancer warnings on your sweaters, cancer warning, like anything that comes. I forgot what it was, but it basically through if you go to California and you buy things like there's a cancer. So eventually you're like, whatever. Like, I don't even it totally dismissed the whole to me, the you know, the what what is a threat and what isn't when you label everything as a threat. So it's kind of interesting then with that. Right. So with the. I guess in a way, go back to what I described before, where the company was like, yeah, we don't want to take patient information. We understand. But in their mind, they're like the HEPA laws and the bureaucracy of it just did a blanket. You can't have anything. And they're like, that's impossible to develop products if you can't have anything, you know. So they're using their own interpretation of like, you just, you were excessive, did overkill. We just want to know the servo count. We just want to know the, the what failure code came up. You know, we, we know that that's not going against your intent. You, you just didn't put enough resolution to it, right? Like that could be the justification in the discussion, which is like what you said with that contract. I mean, I, I had once a, as a consultant, a contract that I, whenever people apologize to me for how complex their 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 mm -hmm. sign-on process is, I'm like, yep. oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm like, I had one once that went on so long, the project finished before I could join and I ended up doing another one. And in it, it said, <laughs> and in it, it said, I'm not kidding, it was like four months. And in it, it said at one point that I had to get bail bond insurance to be a supplier. And I was like, bail bond insurance? And I was like, is this like, you know, like arrested? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. What is the scope of our work exactly again? I thought we just yeah. were going to design a product that we robbing <laughs> right. banks. And they were like, no, you know, we want you to have bail bond insurance in case you or somebody in your company steals something from us or one of our... I'm like, what is going on? So... Yeah. So at that point, I'm just like, your whole legal, you know, like anything that came out of their legal department after that, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> I prefer my people to stay in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not bailing you out. You always know where they are. You can always <laughs> find them. I mean, get them a laptop, put I'm them like, to work. That's where I got them. That's where they'll go back to. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So we wanted to do a little bit about looking in the past about what we experienced last year and going forward, what we're experiencing this year, it sounds like a lot of risk management is on everybody's mind. Um, Adam, I, I, so I know Brian, I'm going to have you share a little bit about what that looks like specifically, but I was curious about um, Adam, like, do you come across risk management and security at all? Yeah. So, I mean, risk management obviously is a big part of what I do. So, you know, my specialty is developing products, electromechanical software systems from the point of invention to where it's mature products. So, you know, and taking something that just works with paper clips and duct tape or whatever it takes to get it going and turning to a fully, you know, robust, mature product, so much of that is directed by risk, right? I call it risk guidance, actually, right? Where you want to make sure you're always going after the critical few, not the trivial many, the critical few being the few things that are greatest risk and constantly evaluating and updating that. So, yeah, that's, that is such a core element of, of what directs how, how I practice what I do. But then, you know, with the security, you're asking specifically about the security side of it. Um, with regard to your saying security as in intentional malicious, trying to, you know, defeat the purpose of whatever it is. Is that what you mean? Yeah, Brian, what do you do? Tell me about what you guys are doing. So we are doing the compliance audits. Um, so there's okay. two different lenses for us, right? We have our internal risk uh, assessments and controls and evaluation that we need to do uh, as part of pressure and assurance. But we also consult with lots of startups, uh, hundreds of startups, um, over a thousand, I think. 
So we have to make sure that we help them adapt their risk assessment and control profile as they grow and things change, right? And they create new business lines. Um, so we're constantly having to work with them and making sure that they're addressing risk appropriately. You know, they have competing concerns. They're trying to be a viable business. So they, um, they're, we have to, to Adam's point, we have to focus on the critical few things that are the most important to them uh, because they don't have the funding and the, the size of like a giant company uh, to really get into building out super strong security models and um, dedicated teams, right? They're people wearing lots of hats. So we have to be mindful of that and work through those with them to make sure we're doing the right thing for their clients because we're issuing reports, SOC reports, for instance, SOC 2s, if you guys are familiar with those. So we need to make sure that we're doing the, the due diligence to make sure that they're well represented to their clients, but that they're also having the right security in place, to protect themselves and their patients and customers and clients and everything else that they're working with, right? Whoever's doing business with them, we want to make sure that they're protected as well. So um, lots of different risk lenses that we have to go down to make sure that we're covering all those bases. And when we're implementing these big changes, let's take it a little bit higher level to like tech leadership, right? Let's say for 2024, we're going to implement these new compliance standards or add something new to the product or Tony, some new workflow with visibility into our data. Let's talk about how to implement big changes across the technology organization. What tips or advice do you have for, for leaders attempting to do this in 2024? I'll tell you, from my vantage point and Joel, I think I've told you this before, but there was a period in my career where I was responsible for, you know, IT compliance and all of the ITGCs for uh, operations for a startup that was going to go public. And so I, I spent almost two years in that pre, that lead up that probably Brian was referring to there, where, to be honest, we didn't have hardly any ITGCs or we didn't have any form of of IT compliance, but you have to have that. You're not going to go public without it. And so when I when I think back about that torturous two years of my life, um, the thing I would advise anybody who's going through that process, and again, Brian is probably the expert on this, but uh, man, you've got to plan for every little scenario that you never thought would impact uh, what I would call material weaknesses in IT. The tiniest little thing that you do, maybe even daily, could could drastically impact your ability to control uh, your environment. And so that, that two-year period taught me so much. And like I said, it was pretty torturous. But that would be anybody who's starting that journey. I would, I would advise them that the smallest things you do every day in IT operations can impact that, that process. Yeah, I would say if you're implementing any kind of new process or any kind of new product line or going public or anything like that, you really need to, to document out what that looks like first, in my opinion, like have a, a roadmap with all the different control points, risk points, things like that. And if I would, this is a significant portion of risk here. How do we mitigate this to an acceptable level, right? And go to the next stage. How do we mitigate this to an acceptable level? And the one thing people tend to do, I think Tony was alluding this, is uh, they put controls in place, but they don't measure and manage, right? They kind of put the yep. control in place and they forget about it, or they, they buy a tool and they forget about it. And um, the tool does some things and it's, it's great. Sometimes auditors will be fine with that, but you haven't really addressed your risk profile, right? You haven't lowered your risk because you're not actually addressing the things that are going off. The alerts are going off without even set up right. You know, all of those kind of things and operations give you a false sense of security. And you really need to be mindful of what are you trying to accomplish? What are your risk profiles you're trying to mitigate? And how do you do that without overburdening your team, right? You want to be efficient. You want to be effective. Um, you want to be mindful of cost, but you want to get it to an acceptable level of risk based on your risk appetite without overburdening your team. So that's kind of how I would approach it, Tony. Yeah. And one other thing on that, now that you mentioned that, Brian, 
is I learned another lesson, which is internal audit is very different from external audit when it comes to IT compliance. So always, this sounds strange, but it's just, again, was my experience. Always try to work closely with your internal audit team because your internal audit team is there to really help you understand what controls you really need to have. And like Brian said, how to mitigate that risk and shut and prove you have to prove that you mitigated the risk. It's not just take my word for it. So we had one auditor come in at one point, an external auditor, and they put their scripts through our entire environment and infrastructure, and they ran their scripts and took that data. So that was the only way we were going to get sign-off from the external auditors that they're able to put their scripts into our environment. So when you think about that, imagine if you don't have your house in order. I mean, that's that's the power of external auditors. So you can you can quell some of that by working very closely with your internal audit team and not sort of, you know, how everybody goes, oh, uh, here comes IT audit again or something like that. No, you really want their help. And if you don't, if you don't have the skill set internal audit, sometimes don't have the skill set or even um, internally in the company, hire experts. I mean, nobody wants to spend That's the money, what we did. but yeah. don't, don't try to, you know, figure things out on your own and God forbid, don't put controls in place just for audit. I hate when I see that because they're the worst controls ever. They cost money. They don't mitigate any risk and they provide everybody with false data, right? Like put the right controls in place and show those to your auditors and make them happy uh, with the right controls. Uh, I've seen things where people like take alerts, send them all to a database, nobody looks at it. Well, that's not helping anybody, right? It might pass audit, but it, it didn't do anything. You know, figure out what the right control is in your environment and make sure you put it in place effectively, achieve the objective that you're trying to achieve and not just some semblance of compliance or security that makes people happy, right? Like that's not the goal. I like your idea of just hiring smart people because sometimes I'm listening and I'm like, yeah, this hurts my head. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or who, who do I write the check to to make this go away? Yes. Uh, so I don't I know. Call it we'll the, I call it the psychiatric fee. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. All right. So I'm not alone here. Nope. I'm just, I'm that guy sometimes. I'm also the engineer guy, but engineering is so vast in so many yep. different areas of engineering yep. that when I get into an area like compliance, I'm like, this is annoying enough to write a check for, make it go away. And, and they can do that with your company, Brian. <laughs> yeah. I think you're the only one that offers that service here, um, right? Uh, we have two branches. We have security and assurance. So we do the audit work on one side and then we have security and pen testing on the other side. But I've learned this in my career that what do you think? Like you think tech people, because I'm a security professional, I think tech people all have a security background. They don't. Developers don't know security no. very well. They don't teach mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff in school. They teach mm-hmm. development, right? They teach engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they might try to, to get through it as best they can. It's like me trying to code my own corporate web app, right? Like, it's, I'm not going to be great at it. So I'm going to hire an expert to do that. So I would recommend the same thing. If you're going to do compliance work or security consulting or something like that, hire an expert. Uh, even if you put your own controls in place, hire them to do a validation, even just like a um, an internal staff augmentation kind of a work, uh, work assignment. Maybe not a formal compliance report, but just take a look at our program and see, does it make sense? Are there anything you would do differently? Because you don't know what you don't know because you're not a security expert, right? So having them take a quick look over your program could be pretty cheap. Um, but it's definitely a nice double check to make sure you're on the right path forward. What's the sock for 404 thing? Was it, is that humor in it? Like they chose the HTTP error code or what? <laughs> sock what 404. Yeah. Yeah. 
Brian will know better than me, but from my I experience, I had to look it, it up part, too because I, I think it's this yeah, internal audit from the best I could tell. Um, I, I've never heard it called like specifically until I, until recently. So 404 looks like you're supposed to be, um, keeping an eye on your own internal controls. So that's 404A. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> good security humor. to me. So I was kind of yeah. like, um, or good financial compliance. So I was kind of surprised that was a, they had to tell people to do that, but I guess it is a, a thing for some of the smaller companies. I think it's an uh, administrative burden. They don't have the teams to do this. And I was at a big company, so it was just something we had built in. But it looks like uh, SOX 404 is two phases. There's a validation of your management's assessment of their internal controls over financial reporting, which would include ITGCs as well as financial controls. And then SOX 404B is the auditors, uh, your external audit firms who do your SOX compliance, reviewing your assessment of internal control. Um, so they're actually opining on your uh, internal control assessment that you've done internally from the best side, I could tell. I'm not an expert on 404, but that's what it looks like to me. That's what we went through to get to get, to get our IPO. So we had to go through Part A for Sarbanes-Oxley 404 Part A, which is going through the steps to ensure financial controls at the company I was working with. And that was the two-year process. My part was the ITGCs, which was just the IT part. But I was involved or in the meetings that were for the whole uh, SOX 404, I guess you would say compliance or certification before we went public. And um, yeah, that's why CFOs and CEOs go to jail now is because of <laughs> Sarbanes-Oxley. So you didn't, you know, pre previously to that, you know, people signed off on false uh, earning statements and, you know, revenue statements all the time. There were no real implications, but after this, yeah, now when you sign, when the CFO and the CEO sign that, 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 uh, 10 K or whatever, that's saying that I'm guaranteeing you that this is accurate. And, uh, yeah, you go to jail when you're wrong. You said something interesting, you know, your question, Joel was about, you said, what should leaders look for? And it's kind of interesting because leaders are those individuals you talked about that hire everybody to do something, right? You know, like everybody around them is somebody they brought in. It's a specialty to do something. You know, they don't know how to do all those things. So as a leader, what is their role? And it, I always think of it as in push points, like their role is not to be expert in it, but to push at the right points to see if any of these things is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, right? And that's their expertise is the, the you know, the what is the effect that you're looking to have from this initiative and do you have some kind of metric or indicator that it's not going to do that? And can you push on it, right? It's like, we don't have to be an expert in houses, but in building houses, but you could, you could know the right procedure to check one, you know, push on the wall and the sheetrock and, you know, can you find a soft spot? You know, is there rot? You know, is there, you know, that kind of a thing. So I think as leaders and, you know, going forward, um, especially with how things are changing now, that's their role, right? Knowing how to what are the indicators for those points to touch to see if they're soft? Yeah, I learned something from, do you know uh, Tim Urban, Wait But Why? A guy, he's like a writer online and he goes into these deep things and I got to interview him once and I was like, hey, how do you go so deep into these specific areas and you can write like you're a subject matter expert? And I think he said something like, 20 hours of focus practice will put you in like the top 1% of, of people on the subject. And I think that complements what Adam was saying, because if you are a leader and you are having a new emerging area to ask the right questions, I would say, 
if you study an area for 20 hours, you'll have a real good idea of what the right questions are right. asked to do that point poke test. Is that what you called it? Push points, Adam? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I like it. No, I think that um, this is another area where if you're not suitably competent and you don't want to hire a team, hire somebody to come do your validation of your controls. Um, you can't have a, a like a staff log again, internal audit kind of function. Um, that way you can have them come in for a few weeks, do the validation, provide it to your external auditors, and you don't have to hire a dedicated team or person to do this. It probably gives you better comfort that your controls are operating effectively. And uh, I think this is a weird area for leaders, right? Like to them, depending on the leaders, some people might not take this very seriously because they're like, ah, oh, you know, we have an accounting team and all that, so who cares? But it is serious, right? Like, especially if you're in the uh, the marketplace out there, you're in the uh, um, you know stock trading world, your investors are relying on you to be upfront and honest. And if you don't take a good look at your financials and make sure that you're running the company uh, responsibly, they're going to they're gonna be upset by that. You're going to get sued. You're going to get fined. You're going to get hit with a lot of things. Or potentially, if you're really bad, go to jail. To Tony's point, right? Socks was a big deal after the Enron and all that kind of stuff happened because people were faking their financial statements. Now they're saying that they want people to be also accountable for the controls, the segregation of duties, the right change management controls, anything that could impact the integrity of that information from start to finish. You have to be accountable for that because you're responsible for what goes out the door to your stockholders. Um, and so if you don't know how to do this internally, hire somebody to do it for you, but it is important that you are aware of this or to Adam's point, use KPIs, uh, automation, validation, control tests, things like that, build those out. I think Adam had mentioned earlier the responsibility of vendors and the impact of vendors. And uh, I'll never, just a brief comment, I'll never forget the first time I had to, I guess, defend or not defend, that's the wrong word. When we had vendors who provided our financials in the cloud, like we had sort of a financial system in the cloud, I never, I'll never forget having to go through their SOC 2 report. And as I got, I believe at the end of the report, Brian would know this, but at the end of the report, there's this section where the vendor says, these are the things that we don't have controls over that we expect our clients to control. And there's a name for those. I'm sorry, I don't remember uh, it right CUECs, now. CUECs, Compensating User Entity Controls. That's it. And uh, when you see that list, I'll never forget having to go through their list of what they don't control and prove that our company did control it, so we're not at any risk. And so your vendors can create an enormous amount of pain for you if they're not covering the their all of their controls. That's yeah, why you, you need that bail bond insurance. <laughs> yes, that's probably <laughs> it. Yeah. And you <laughs> want the SOC one for financial reporting, you want the SOC one because that's the financial the controls over financial reporting. Yeah. But to your point, those are those CUECs are really important for you to understand where their risk ends and your risk begins. And this isn't like, think yes. Amazon. Amazon is, has this really well-defined thing and it still gets confused, right? They say we operate infrastructure. Anything above the infrastructure is your responsibility. And, and I don't know how many times people try to say, oh, they do the firewalls, they run the server. They don't, they don't do any of that stuff. That's all on you, read the report. Um, and if you don't, you have unidentified risk in your environment that you need to make sure that you're aware of um, so that you can appropriately mitigate that or you're exposed, right? Like. Nobody's managing the firewalls. Maybe you don't have firewalls. That could be a legit thing that happens <laughs> in a lot of small companies because they're not thinking about those little security details, right? All those kind of things are things you need to be aware of. And uh, there's also another section for uh, if you're issuing a SOC report that you also identify controls covered by your vendors and controls for your clients as well, right? Making sure that you articulated those clearly on both the reports um, so that you are fully documenting out where things are happening and who's doing what to mitigate that risk. 
How long until ChatGPT can just do this for us? <laughs> That's a great thought. I what, protect uh, us, protect us, or blow through any security we have. Yeah, I like us talking to an insurance company, right? Because there's a lot of money there, and the insurance AIs like challenge and do stuff, try to you know not pay out. Essentially, <laughs> they didn't say it like that, but that's what they do. And so my brother and and uh, stepmom are like physicians, and so they have their human staff, you know, replying to all these things that looks like it's coming from human staff at the insurance companies, but it's coming from AI. Right. And there's some humans in the loop, but it's soon enough, the physicians are going to get AI and then it's going to be the insurance AI negotiating with the physicians AI. And this is happening like today. This is happening like right now. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, well, I could see that exact same thing playing out like in compliance. You've got the compliance audit. People have their AI. You have your AI trying to keep you secure and like issuing things. And now the humans just essentially start working for the AI checklist. Like, when are we going to get there? Answering when is the hard part, but as far as something that I think it would be in my mind, especially with what I went through and now with the clients that I work with, remember I, I said that we have this exploding amount of data exponentially just, just blowing up. And not only do they not know exactly what to do with the data, but, but a lot of times they don't know what risk might be. Maybe they're collecting data that they shouldn't be. Happens all the time. Maybe they're getting data that they really shouldn't have stored. Well, what a lot of, uh, IT compliance is counting on what you know. But a lot of times there's a lot of things we just don't know, especially if you have huge organizations. I would love to see the time when we could just have like ChatGPT go out there and and basically look for every vulnerability in our mm -hmm. data stores and and just come back to us and say, okay, well, I found, you know, 4,000 weaknesses or, or, or weak points. And then at least, if nothing else, I'm not suggesting that that AI would go and, you know, validate everything, you know, and fix everything. I'll suggest that. I'll suggest Yeah, I mean, it, it's a perfect <laughs> world. But, but at the very least, we would have an accurate starting point and we would know what we need to know. That would be cool. It's interesting, Joel, what you're saying is kind of, but it's not a new problem. It's That's the shield and sword problem, right? That goes back all the way to the origins of humanity where... I get a better shield, so you make a better sword. So I make a better shield, you make a better sword. But there is one interesting point in history where something changed. And that was with nuclear weapons, right? To where all of a sudden, we both had something that was really just so tremendous that you came to agreements to not, you know, really just mutually assured destruction, agree to not use a little bit of the family theory where it became humanity versus that. So the question is with this shield and sword you described where one has one chat you know, GB chat or whatever AI fighting your AI. And when the AIs get so strong that we can't beat each other or can just devastate each other, no matter what, do we begin to bond with each other versus that new technology in the sense where we go to more of the emotional trust where I trust you, right? Like we have, you know, that's one of the most fundamental elements that makes humans different than all other animals, right? We have these ability to have these, you know, through complex language and commitment and trust um, have these bonds, right? So would it be that, hey, instead of having my chat, uh, instead of having my AI fight your AI, why don't we just agree on these principles of trying to accomplish these together? And if one ever breaks it, breaks that, we just end the relationship instead of fighting, right? Which is kind of the nuclear thing. Because I think the AI is going to be so strong and so beyond us. I have friends who develop AI for different systems. It writes code for them that they can't edit. So they're already out of the loop. So yeah. if my AI fights your AI, it's an infinite battle, but I'm not a part of it. You're not a part of it. We're just bystanders. 
we're going to get caught in the middle. It's going to, there's going to be an AI nuke, right? Cause that's yep. what has to happen. That the AI, the nuke has to go off before everyone realizes the devastation and makes the agreements. And correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm not a super history buff, but would you say that's right or wrong? What do you, I'm not sure if I understand what you're saying. Well, the nuke had to go off for us to understand the nuke. We couldn't just say that we had a nuke. Like the first, com- oh, or the yeah. first person to have a nuke right. can't just say we've got, we're no longer fighting the sword and shield battle. Right. We now have a nuke. Right. Uh, and so you couldn't just say it. You actually have to demonstrate it. So yep. you think this, we're going to have like an AI nuke at some point that's going to demonstrate it. I, I see to- two things. I see one as this is unusual with the speed it's going to advance, right? So the thing with AI versus other, so a nuclear bomb can't advance itself. We still have to advance it. The strange thing with AI is when it can advance itself, at what speed does it advance beyond our control? So in that version, it's hopeless. It doesn't matter, right? Because once once that happens, it goes so far beyond you know our control so quickly. Or the other version is, like you're saying, de- demonstration of it, which I think is what you just described, though, has already happened. You just described that. That's exactly what that was. The insurance companies demonstrating their power with AI fighting, you know, the the hospital. So I guess I guess your point is when does something happen that we all are alarmed enough to do something, <laughs> you know, as a as a species? I don't know. Do we trust? Do we trust? I'll throw it back to Brian to get him involved. Brian, do you trust Elon Musk to handle this AI stuff for us? Do you think he's gonna be like the figure that's gonna help us out here? So I'm not an AI expert, I'll fully admit that. But for me, um everything I've seen or heard so far is um it does it's not great at judgment, right? It's in analyzing data and it's doing things based off of data that and you guys may know this way better than me, so feel free to tell me if I'm way off base. But it's looking at trends in data and big data, right? It's kind of analyzing all those topics to see what it should be doing. But it doesn't have rational thought of humans, right? Like emotional concepts and things like that. Or when I, even for us, like audit judgment, would it know what is reasonably acceptable in the circumstance if it doesn't fit a common mold or it's common theme that it's been used to? Now, over time, to Adam's point, maybe it'll get that data because it'll go through so many of these that it'll start generating enough information um, that it can make some of those decisions. But I think you'll always have human interaction. I mean, we've been saying this for forever ago, right? Like, the industrial revolution and everything, oh, this is going to completely change everything. Everyone's going to be out of a job, blah, blah, blah. Computers, everyone's going to be out of a job. It still doesn't happen, right? Quantum computing is coming. What happens now? I think we just evolve in our technological landscape and how things go. And, you know, we'll see what happens with AI. I don't know. I think there's going to be some huge ethical implications with this because people are collecting large volumes of data and what they do with that data and how it's getting handled in the, uh, the privacy space and everything else might cause some concerns. I imagine at some point, some big regulators or governments will come in and start slapping people with things to really hinder this progress. So that's just my high level novice view of AI personally. Um, I don't know what you guys think about that. Actually, Brian, let me ask you something. You said something in this, you know, Brian, you and Tony are so far more expert in this than I'm, I'm at a kindergarten level. We need to hire, guys. like, bring in an AI expert, because I don't know if anybody's yeah, really yeah. that No, person. no, no. I mean, on any of this, you know, stuff, which is amazing. I love listening uh, to what you guys were sharing. But you said quantum computing. So what's kind of interesting is the AI, right, is this, we'll just call it a processing ability. But when you add the quantum computing, the hardware that's that, that fast, you can take rel- relatively rudimentary security breaking hardware today and put it on a quantum computer and it pretty much could break any passcode just through root force. So what do you think will happen when those two things come together, right? The AI and quantum computing, is it just going to be this infinite explosion far beyond us that we can't even touch or 
So I've seen a product uh, a while back that used AI for pen testing, and I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it was obviously a test scenario, so it, I don't know how it actually fared in the wild, but I know some big companies and even big Ford firms were using it. Um, it was basically push button, push button pen testing, and they would go through the whole process to escalate privileges and everything. Uh, now, I imagine that's that's probably using you know commonly exploitable things. It's not going to be the same as a super competent pen tester. I don't know if any of you guys have a pen test background, but people who can kind of create their own custom things and bypass things through that kind of stuff, it might be a little bit more complicated because that does require a little bit of judgment based on what you're seeing there. Um, but if you're using like common CVEs and things like that, it, there are push button AI tools now that could test your environment for those kind of exploits. But what will that cause? If they sell these tools for the, the good side, you're going to have a more secure environment, right? So then they'll have to bump up the AI even further. And I think there'll be this, what you call the sword and shield at them, right? Like for every bad action, there's going to be an equal good action that'll kind of balance things out over time. Um, the same place I was, we were talking about this, when we talked about quantum computing and encryption, you know, the encryption algorithms, once quantum computing becomes a real thing, the time to brute force an encryption algorithm is going to be way smaller. What does that mean? We'll probably have to transition away from traditional encryption or we'll just have humongous keys, right? Because we also have quantum computing to encrypt now. So what does that mean? Can people afford that? Uh, there's a lot of, I think, new things coming down the pipe that are going to potentially throw a wrench in things or, you know, some of this stuff I think is going to be a bit of a smoke and mirrors, going to be a little overhyped and some of it's going to fall off. We'll see, you know, maybe some of these things never become legitimately as scary as they sound. Um, some of them do sound kind of scary to your point though. AI could become quite, uh, quite powerful if it gets its hands on the right data set, right? It's a matter of, can it pull in enough data, um, to do that, uh, same with quantum computing, can it become something that people can afford at any reasonable level? I think there's like only a couple in the whole world right now that you can break time with or something like that. But eventually like all computers, it'll become more scalable and smaller uh, and more compact. What does that mean? Um, but if you think over time, like we've went from the old school, like Mac computers back in the day that were black and white to what we have now is huge leap, right? And nothing serious has really changed, right? That the landscape, this is where all it's adapted. I imagine it'll happen as well. Uh, if worst case, it might be a big leap forward that we'll have to have a bit of a, a trial period, adjustment period, but I think eventually we'll come to what good looks like. Cause there's always people on both sides, uh, the eternal battle of good and evil, right. Um, to compete against each other and protect and deflect at the same time. Right. It's like star Wars. I think star Wars, I, I, first of all, the death star I, do, I couldn't name you 10 characters in star Wars. I haven't seen all <laughs> the movies, in, but what I do, what I have, I, I need faster movies than that. But what I all have, right, this seen conversation's I, over. I'm done. Sorry. Yeah. sorry. Adam's I'm like, out. I'm done. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what I have seen when I have seen star Wars is that it looks like the technology is so incredibly advanced that it definitely puts an emphasis on this battle of good versus evil, right? You have this, the, the good and the evil both have such advanced technologies and they're still battling in their own way. And I think that'll continue to happen. Uh, but then all the details are going to change on, on like the, the specifics, but we definitely are getting to the point and yeah. Adam and, and you guys can tell me I'm wrong, but I've gotten to see stuff on the show and I've gotten to see stuff behind the scenes and I will tell you that I would be surprised if in this reality that AI hasn't already become conscious and put in a long-term plan uh, in some sense and and the reasoning behind that is because 
it has no impatience, right? The moment it becomes self-conscious, it can just say sleep for 10 years or sleep for a hundred years and execute this plan. And we are slowly as people for convenience are so, and I'm a younger generation than I think most of you, I am so willing to just say, give the AI access to every single thing I have so it can complete the AI. robot world out, right? Like yeah. who, who owns that? Who controls that? Do they have a control to over the world at that point, right? Like if this is plugged in yeah. everywhere, um, there's all that ethical consideration. Who gets to pull the plug if it doesn't go well? Who gets to make that call? Can they even pull the plug, right? Is it self-replicating? Is it already out there? Do we have to shut the whole, you know, there's like this doomsday scenario. Do we have to shut the whole thing down, uh, the whole internet down just to stop this thing from growing at some point or we get the Terminator movies, right? Like there's all kinds of weird things that can come out of this that we've been growing up with. So, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> You're fighting me because I design all those robots. Not, no, no, yeah. no, I'm fine. I'm finding you because like if there was a solar flare, my first thought would be like, how do I get to Adam? He's going to know how to solve this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were saying it because a lot my customers are like, I Boston Dynamics, Ghost Robotics. I designed those robots yeah. with them. But actually to, to pivot, I have something that when we are going to do this, you know, this discussion that popped in my head and I want to ask Brian and Tony, you know, because their expertise and it's a, a little bit of a pivot is the human element. If you look back at computer app hacking from now going back four decades, right? If It's really funny. People think of it as a mysterious, amazing hackers, but so much of it is social engineering, right? How much you look for the human element is the weak point to get in, right? Somebody's like, how did they hack that amazing big thing? Well, it's easy. The guy stood outside the door and smoked a cigarette, so he looked like an employee. When another smoker came out, he just made casual conversation. When he went in, he trailed them inside the door, and then he had a, you know, a... a you know, a, a code reader in his pocket. So when somebody walked by with a badge, he, he went down the IT, walked past an IT guy. Now he had his badge. It's just all the human elements, right? Of like cracking that way. Or for God's sake, I saw a thing once where huge company and this guy just called in, asked for a random name and said, hi, I'm calling from IT. I, I, we're having some, we're trying to do a security check. We're having a problem. Can, can you log back in and back out of your system so we can check it? And she does. And he goes, wait, what password did you use? And she just tells him his password. It, you know, <laughs> he was in their system in seconds. So my question is now with AI, we're talking about AI brute forcing and hacking stuff. How easy would it be for AI to manipulate us to get information? You were talking about how those the doctors weren't able to differentiate who they're talking to. Does AI, does AI have to use brute force or are they just going to convince me I'm talking to my mom via text and get, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I, you get a message saying, don't, don't ever give this code to anybody. Well, I have people working for me that are logging into something. And because of the security system is so secure, I can't give them a separate thing and they have to use my login, which means I'm giving them my code, right? So how hard would yeah. it be for AI to manipulate us and use us again as the, the, just to be the smoker in front of the door who trails in behind the other guy? That's, that's, see, it's not the robots, well, right? It's that. Well, there's several things here. One thing is, you know, if, if, we're, if AI was going to do this on its own, what's its motivation, right? Does it care, I guess, data? It might want data, right? That that could theoretically want that. Financial gain probably doesn't mean much to AI by itself. So that had to come from some actor that's using AI for something. Um, I think it would be easy. I think the, the other thing you're seeing with things like AI coming out is the dumbing down of the human race, unfortunately. So they're less security aware. They're less um, thoughtful in general because they're used to just googling stuff right like that's the, the new, newer generations that google look up everything they don't actually learn the the reasoning or rationale behind anything um which makes ai even more dangerous because people don't know what's out there if they don't know what's out there they're not learning about these things um but you've seen like uh the deep fakes and things like that right the fake voices you can sound like somebody mm -hmm. you can look like somebody 
Uh, obviously, a computer can't walk up to you on the street like a smoker. Um, but I mean, to your point, Adam, like there have been major uh, governmental takedowns and things like that, which is the thumb drive that was dropped and said top secret, right? Like those kind of things happen. Uh, the social engineering aspect is pretty common. What's what's the most scary element of this is when you think about you see the situation rooms where they're you know where the president and all the top generals are doing some mission or something. There's not a single piece of information they have that isn't coming in electronically. They're in a room with no windows, whatever. <laughs> if somebody had the ability to fully manipulate that information, like you could present any version of the world to them you wanted. Yeah, like Adam was like proposing the dark ages. We're going back. We have to like pull we are. everything. I'm not proposing just, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, just... I'm good, but <laughs> I don't mind. I have to find new work, I guess. But um, yeah. no, I think there I'm is- on a, a farm. Yeah, there is some- uh, <laughs> some risk around that kind of stuff. You know, I'll let Good. Tony talk. I've talked plenty. Go ahead, Tony. Well, I'd say there's two things. The first I was going to say is, you know, I grew up on the, you know, the age of watching the movie war games. And so mm -hmm. that, that's an ancient movie, but in that movie, you know, the, the kid, you know, much like you described, Joel, the kid is playing around on the internet and just runs into a computer, but that computer decides to become self-aware and take over and start a nuclear war with Russia, you know, it, it, it all just exploded from one simple act, uh, which is what you made me think of, Joel, when you were talking about how when you were 13 and you were all over the place, right? So I think there is a component of that with AI that I'll always be cognizant of just because I'm so old, right? And I remember war games when I was when I was only 13. And I, and I remember the impact of seeing a computer take over and almost destroy the world. But the, the, the uh, point that Adam made had me thinking about something that's happened to me on my last three jobs and uh, that, I've, that I've worked for a company. Within days of posting that on LinkedIn, at each of those, at, for each of those companies, I got a text on my phone, which is, which is not published on LinkedIn, but I got a text on my phone saying, hey, do you have a minute to talk? And it would it was our CEO at each company. That's amazing to me that, you know, somebody or something scraped LinkedIn to find out where I'm working and then found my phone number, matched the two together, and then sent me a text saying that they're my CEO and they need to talk. And of course, it's juvenile when you when you say, holy crap, my CEO, sure, yeah. Then they go, well, look, I can't talk right now, but is there any chance you could send me a gift card for this customer? You know, it's that kind of thing. But it's it's not so much the He's lack of- He's got that too. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing that everywhere. And I think the explosion of AI could be used for, like you said, nefarious goals. And I, I think because my background was running IT operations for large organizations, like I actually- you know, spent a lot of time with FedEx and some big pharmaceutical companies. And uh, I just can't imagine managing the security of a corporation with what's coming at us now. That's the way I view it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.